On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull, a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. Just pause. Uh, that is all that we have read. If you would have read up until this point, those are the different offerings that, we, that the book of Leviticus talks about. Verse 5. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you do, you to do, rather, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So what happens in the following verses is they do all of that. Uh, they offer up the different offerings, and then we're going to skip ahead to verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from the offering, offering the sin offering and the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray to God and ask Him to help us to understand His word. Oh Lord, we ask that You would open our eyes, open our ears. Lord, that You would open our hearts as well. That we might know You, that we might see You as beautiful and believable, even in this uh, perhaps difficult text. And we lift this all up in your name, O Lord. Amen. Well, um, we've been looking at the book of Leviticus all semester long. And it's, we've been saying over and over again that the book of Leviticus really does address this central question. How in the world can such a holy God live in the midst of such a sinful people? In other words, how can God, the one of the Bible, the one told of in the Bible, how in the world can He live amongst such sinful people? And tonight, we come to a text that looks at the proper response when God does in fact dwell powerfully in their midst. In other words, tonight we're going to look at this topic of worship. But tonight I believe we will actually be considering something far greater than what you think worship is. You see, you may think it's about Sundays and suits. Maybe you think about singing songs on out-of-tune pianos. And all that might be true, but when it comes to the topic of worship itself, the Bible tells us that we are coming to something more profound than you could ever imagine. I have a friend named Nick, and Nick was in the military for many years, and several years ago, Nick got a dog. Uh, and Nick likes to hunt, and he heard that there was this program in the military that trains dogs for military service in all of its various forms. However, sometimes these dogs 
they never get used or they get injured you know, slightly and they can't be used in military service. And so for whatever reason, uh, this training ground, this military base will uh, actually receive applications for you to adopt these uh, very well uh, trained dogs. Well, it's a very rigorous process when they ask you a ton of questions. And one of the questions they asked Nick was, do you have any kids? And, one of, and he had to answer yes, because here's why. A lot of those dogs are German shepherds. And uh, they did not want Nick to have his kids playing with some of Nick's kids' friends, wrestling, playing around, and that sort of deal. And the dog itself seeing that, not understanding that it was play, and then it would be trained to attack the child. You see, that's why uh, they didn't give him a German shepherd, because that's what that dog is bred to do. It's bred to attack, and it's bred to defend. It was, in other words, what he is meant to do. You could say it's even his calling as a dog, so to speak. So instead, instead, Nick got, he said, the best lab ever. He said, um, Nick takes him to hunt with him, and that dog will flush out the duck. The dog will heal on command. That dog will not move until, the dog, until Nick says, retrieve, and it points. And when he does, he says, it is awesome to watch. That dog will beeline to the duck that are down and will pick multiple ducks up and bring them back to him. It will drop them at his feet and look up at him for his next command. And he says the dog does it with, if, if there's such thing as joy in a dog, then this joy, dog has got it. Why? Because that's what labs are meant to do. That's what they're bred for. They're bred for retrieving. That's what its calling was. Now, what does any of this have to do with the topic of worship? Well, listen. Everything. Everything. Because the Bible is going to say over and over again that you and me were actually made for something. Have you ever considered what you're made for? Have you ever tried to wrestle with that question of what is the ultimate purpose of my life? Well, the Bible answers it. It at least gives us a vision for it. And you know what it says? It says this. You were made to worship God. That is your ultimate calling. And like Nick's dog, the Bible asserts over and over again that your happiness is actually bound up in it. So tonight, we're going to look at this topic of worship. We're going to look at it underneath three headings. First of all, what true worship is. Secondly, the text will show us what lies at the heart of false worship. And then lastly, what sets us free to worship or how do we worship. So what is it? What isn't it, and uh, what sets? How do we how do we get into it, or how do we do it? So that's sort of our main topic. Well, if you look there, turn your eyes to the uh, text. I want to suggest to you that worship itself is you can understand it underneath two R words: recognizing and responding. Recognizing and responding. That's what worship is. What do I mean? Well, did you notice what happens here in the text? If you turn your eyes to verse 24, do you see that? Uh, in verse 23, it says, The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the offerings. And look, and when the people saw it. That's very, very important. Because what that means is, is what's bound up at the heart of worship is actually seeing or getting a glimpse of who God is. You see, real worship, real worship only can happen as we see God as He reveals Himself. This is very, very important because I think sometimes we like to think, hey, I'm just going to make up the God that I want to worship. And we never stop for a second to kind of say, hold up, who has He revealed Himself to be? Who do we see Him actually is? Do we see Him in His 
power, His might, and His holiness there. But secondly, it's not just recognizing who He is. It's also responding to that. Did you notice what happened as well there in that text? It says that they shouted and they fell on their faces. So here they are. The response comes after seeing who God is in all of His glory and all of His holiness. There now is a response from that. You see, um, this text is showing us over and over again that these people are uh, worshiping God as He has revealed Himself, as they is being seen, and the people fall down in awe and in reverence uh, in light of that. One quote that I think helps us or gets at that, Tim Keller writes this, Worship is seeing and being affected by what God is worth, and in response, giving Him all that we are because of that worth. I think that's great. That captures that idea of recognizing and responding. In other words, I might say it like this, that worship, the true worship, is giving weight and value and worth to something. It's saying, that right there is wonderful. That right there is too good for me. And that might happen viscerally. It might happen somatically. It might happen with our words, with our... However that might happen, there is a response, but it's a response of giving great worth. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He helps us here. Why? Because how do we actually know if we are actually giving weight and worth and value to something? Well, he's going to tell us. He says we have to look at what we enjoy. What we enjoy. Listen to what he says. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise is not, mere, not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Have you ever had a great steak in a restaurant and turned to your neighbor and say, you have got to try this? Or maybe you're an artist and you love a particular artist, band or whatever, and you say, hey, have you heard the new so-and-so album? What are you doing there? You're enjoying it, but... You're doing something else. You're praising it. You see, you're, you're giving weight and value to it. And the praise of the thing is not complete. The enjoyment of it is not complete until it's praised. And it goes both ways as well. Lewis means that we will praise what we enjoy. We will give worth and value, praise and worship to what we find our hearts loving and delighting in. In other words, very simply, what the heart loves, the person will worship. And lastly, I just want to make a small point here on this, that what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about worship, it talks more than just singing songs and listening to the Bible being read. It actually talks about worship being an all-of-life enterprise, something that you live, out, uh, you live out your very being before God in all areas of life. The Latin phrase, quorum Deo, is a phrase that picks that up. It literally means in the face or before the face of God in all of life. Listen to what, um, listen to what uh, one writer, uh, the writer of Romans says when uh, this is Paul, and he says this. You may have heard this. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, ready, as a living sacrifice, not one that's laid on the altar and consumed, but one that is lived out day in and day out in all of life. As an act of worship, which is your spiritual act of worship. This all of life, this, what that means is, do you realize that when you take your statistics test, 
that when you do it unto the glory of God, it's actually seen as worship. That when you hang out with your friends and enjoy pizza together on a Friday night or whatever it is, that all of life is meant to be lived coram Deo, before the face of God, and to do so is actually worship. I think sometimes we relegate worship down to songs and what happens on Sunday or maybe an RUF. But the Bible is going to speak over and over again about it being all of life. How do we know that? Well, Leviticus is going to come to us. It's going to talk to us about our work. It's going to talk to us about the way that we relate to our neighbor. It's going to touch on our sexuality. It's going to talk about how we relate to the poor. All of those things are deeply and profoundly, if you will, worship-filled events. Let me highlight it one more way, and then, I'll be, then we'll move on. Uh, imagine, imagine this scenario. Laura, my wife, uh, at our wedding day, uh, I'm standing up front uh, with the minister, my best man, and you know, my wedding party, and the doors open up, and uh, Laura comes out in all of her literal glory. That dress was beautiful. I had not seen her beforehand. Uh, and she's coming down the aisle. People are, we were, they were singing as she was coming down. It was amazing. She is stunning. It is the closest approximation to her glory self that I'll ever see. Now, and imagine in that moment, if I would have reached into my pocket and started texting on my cell phone. Right? Imagine what happened. Never. Never in a million years. Instead, I wept. I wept like a baby. Why? Because as you see and you catch a glimpse of the glory, the appropriate response is nothing but joy. Nothing but weeping. The Bible is saying over and over again, true worship is about recognizing and responding out of that. I want to share one more quote with you and then I'm going to have to move on. But I love this quote. Listen to what he says. This is a guy named D.A. Carson. It's a little bit long, but I love it. I don't know how you think of worship. I think sometimes we think worship is, I go to a thing and then I leave and I say, man, I got some great worship. I got these worshipful feelings. And the Bible is going to say, you don't know what you're talking about, dear one. To worship is to give ourselves. It's to respond. It's to give our hearts, our joys, our fears, our hopes, our dreams over to the Lord and to say, Oh Lord, where are you? Will you meet me in the midst of this? Listen to what he says. We do not meet to worship, i.e. that is, to experience worship. We aim to worship God. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him. There is the heart of the matter. In this area, as in so many, one must not confuse what is central with byproducts. You see, if you seek peace, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you will find it. If you seek holiness, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you will find holiness. Can't figure out where we are here. Uh, If you seek, uh, are we past this? If you seek experiences of worship, you will not get them. If you worship the living God, you will experience something of what is reflected in the Psalms. I love this. Worship is a transitive verb. And the most important thing is its direct object. Okay, draw on your grammar there a little bit. It's giving something. It's giving away to this wonderful object known as the Lord Himself. Uh, I'm going to skip over the last quote because we need to keep moving. But let's take a look at this second idea, this idea of 
um, the Lord Himself actually demonstrates and shows to us what false worship is. If you'll take a look there in the beginning of chapter 10, we are confronted immediately with a something major. It's like a giant record scratch, you know, like a... And the book of Leviticus. Because something amazing happens. I mean, terrible happens. And that is, Aaron's two oldest sons decide they'll take matters in their own hands. And they're going to go worship on their own terms. And they offer up this unauthorized fire. They were not supposed to do it. And the Lord in all of His holiness literally strikes them down. That ought to be troubling for you. In fact, you might come to me and say, that's why I don't come to Leviticus, Ryan. It's because it's got that angry God. It's that one that's always ticked off the whole time. Well, I get it. But I actually want to show you something else. The God of the New Testament is the same way. Okay, We can show you texts that deal with that. Um, but I want you to also begin to see something here that is amazing. You'll notice immediately that Aaron's sons were consumed. Why? Because they had the idea that if we could just take it upon ourselves to worship how we want to, not the way that God has prescribed, that that's how things will roll. And this shows us that what is really behind the idea of false worship, uh, it shows us, in other words, what is uh, behind it, what's driving it. And here's what I mean. When the Bible talks about false worship, it uses the word idolatry. And what idolatry is, is to make something else more central and valuable in your life than God. For Nadab and Abihu, it was their own opinion and their own authority. They decided wrongly that they could be the ones, as God's chosen priests, to define what worship actually was. They said to God, hey, we know how you want to do things, but our way is better, so that's how we're going to roll. And God says, no, you won't either. I think this is huge because this... I don't know about you, but how does this make you think about how you define what worship is? It makes you put on the brakes a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't think that if we did something wrong in here tonight that God's going to come down and shoot fire out of the projector and something and consume us all, but it actually means that we ought to be mindful of this, that we're dealing with somebody who actually isn't our homeboy, but is God Almighty, the one who is incredibly holy, incredibly wonderful, and altogether different, that if we saw Him face to face, we would literally fall down and die because His holiness is so pure and so bright. My point is this. Anytime we make something greater or more valuable to us than God Himself, the Bible is calling that idolatry. And that's what these guys had done in the midst of it. Now look, you may say, okay, Ryan, that's fine, but... You know, we don't really worship these little, these little idols or whatever anymore. And I say, I get it. Maybe not. But worship of any other thing uh, can certainly fill its place. What about this? What about approval? How many of you uh, live and die on the approval of your friends? If you're like me, you do. I mean, I told the freshman in freshman Bible study, it's like my life goal to make 18 to 22-year-olds like me, okay? It's ridiculous, but I so long for the approval of people. What about you? What about money? What about power? Do you want to have influence? What about recognition? What about sex and pleasure? Anything, anything can become an idol. 
In fact, usually as Tim Keller points out, idolatry at its heart is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing over God himself. You see, in other words, sex, when properly used, is actually a good thing. But when it's sought above God itself, it can become an idol. David Foster Wallace, writer, he's passed away, um, no, by no means a religious man at all, has this to say, and I love it. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll never need more power over others, to, and you'll need more and more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they happen unconsciously, they are our default settings. That is all David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, but he understood something. He understood something about the human heart that you can't not worship. You will always make your life about something. You will always have something that you are driving your life after. And Nadab and Abihu simply said, it's going to be my own authority. It's going to be my own way of doing things. So I just say this to you. What is it for you? Where do you find yourself? Dear Christian, let me ask it this way. Where have you found the love of Jesus for you lacking? And you say, what? What are you talking about? I'm saying, where have you found it lacking that you would turn your heart over to something else? Where have you forgot your true love? Where do you need to be recovered again to this? Well, this is where we turn now. This last point. This idea of what will set us free to worship. What indeed will do it? Well, we've already hinted at it tonight. But did you notice what happened when in verse 23 what went on? The Lord, the glory of the Lord appeared. This was exactly what Moses had said back in verse 6. He said, do these things, for if you do them, the Lord uh, will appear to you. And then in verse 24 and 23, rather, we read that it actually did. The offerings were to be made for sin, to pay for the sins of the priests and the people. And then, whoosh, the glory of the Lord came out of the tent of meeting consumed their, th- those offerings. Why? Because sin was problematic. It had to be taken away for the glory of the Lord to appear. But once, in fact, it did get dealt with, He manifests Himself in that way. And do you remember what happened to the people? They fell down on their faces and they worshipped God. You see, after, it was, uh, after the glory of the Lord blazed brightly, the people were in reverence with Him. So I simply ask us, what will set us free to do the exact same? Think about it. Think about it. We are exactly like them. Hang with me on this. Ready? Don't we want what we want over what God wants like they did? Don't we both have idols that are offensive to God? 
Don't we as well um, both sort of twiddle our thumbs at the presence of God in our midst, saying, no big deal, no biggie? Don't we both think that we can worship on our own terms and not on God's? You see, the connections are there. We're right there in the text with them. How will our sin be dealt with then? That the glory of God might appear to us and dwell with us. That through this we might be able to worship Him rightly and know great joy. Remember the dog. Well, what if I told you that now God's glory doesn't come after the sacrifice, but that it comes in the sacrifice? That God's glory doesn't come after the sacrifice, but comes in it. Well, in a very interesting place in John chapter 1, we are told this. Listen, it is beautiful. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt literally means this. The Word tabernacled with us. It tabernacled with us. And we have seen His what? His glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For God who has said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And why and what did Jesus do all this for? Listen, look at here. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Y'all, the glory of God has been revealed in the death of Christ for you and for me. You don't pay for your sins. Jesus does. And when you see this, guess what? When you recognize this, you can't help but respond in praise in all areas of life. What this means is, is that the glory of God has finally come in a person. And that person has died and paid the sacrifice for you and for me. Think about it. In Christ, God accepts you. Now I just simply ask, how will you reverence Him? Do you see Him? Do you see Him? How will you respond to that great love? Will you twiddle your thumbs? Hey, that's pretty cool. God came to die for sinners. It's pretty fun, you know? No, right? What's that appropriate response? Will you go out and abuse this marvelous grace? Listen, the point is this. If you see His great love for you, you'll begin to give yourself to Him more and more. In the Bible, the enjoyment of God from the heart is what lies at the center of worship. Enjoyment. This doesn't mean that you're happy and clappy, Pollyanna, plaster the fake smile on your face all the time. No, the Psalms, in fact, show us something radically different. They're full of tears. They're full of doubts. They're full of anger. People shouting at God. And the Psalms say, that's real worship. But underneath all of these lies an ever-present joy too. Worshiping God and our happiness go absolutely hand in hand. Paraphrasing Lewis again, God will not give you happiness apart from Himself because it simply doesn't exist. Some of y'all need to hear that tonight. I know I do. You know, I feel like uh, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places or something. You know? And the reality is, there isn't any other place. That's what the God of the Bible is telling us. Worship 
is about the pursuit of joy, the pursuit of happiness. And we praise what our hearts love. And there is only one thing that is worthy of all of our delight, the triune God Himself. This is what leads John Piper to say some of his most famous words. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Your joy and His glory are not opposites. They're one and the same. Can you believe that? That when you take great delight in God, it glorifies Him and it's for your good. That's what the Scriptures are talking about. You are made happy. You are made happy when the Lord Himself is your ultimate treasure. That's the way that you were made and you were built. Leviticus 9 And ten, the glory of God shows up after the sacrifices were made. And in Jesus Christ, the glory of God showed up in Him. The people worshipped with awe, wonder, and joy. How much more, y'all, should we give ourselves to this one? Delighting in Him is where real joy is had. Leviticus points to Him. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He gave Himself for you. Rest in that. See it. Trust it. Believe it. And give yourself to Him. Jesus has said this, whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want life? There's your program. There it is. You want misery? Try to keep your life. It's that simple. It's that simple. But if you want joy, give it away for His sake. Lose yours to finally find it. It's what you were made for. Let's pray. Our God, thank You for Your grace to us. We ask that You would help us to see Your great uh, love for us and the person and work of Jesus. He, Lord, was the one who was consumed so we don't have to be. He was the one who was consumed, not us. That we might live. That we might know You. That we might be able to delight in You and finally find our true rest, our true home in You. Thank You for this wonderful Word to us, and it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.